This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout-out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Helton Honda, Forever, and Aha That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. So for now, hey, our fearless friends, here's Lisa Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of podcast downloads. Once again, we are joined by yet another phenomenal guest. So who is my guest of today? Well, my guest is a brilliant gentleman by the name of Jamie Mustard. Jamie Mustard is an expert on standing out and making something endure. He is a leading authority on brand, art, design, and media perception in the physical world and the economics of attention. Steeped in the world of technology, product engagement, and the creative arts, Jamie consults with leading companies, CEOs, creative artists, public servants, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders, getting their messages, products, brands, and ideas to stand out to their desired audiences. He is the author of the critically acclaimed and multi-award nominated new book, The Iconist, The Art and Science of Standing Out, which the publisher of Forbes praised, declaring that Jamie Mustard cracked the code. Flaunt Magazine recently called his book A New Era of Letter- Literature. Jamie overcame poverty to codify a set of primal laws that can help us all. An avid consumer of popular culture and a graduate of the London School of Economics with a degree in economics and economic history, Jamie has almost two decades of experience in technological and industrial public relations, both nationally and abroad. He has expertise in strategic messaging, demand generation, product development, creative production, story and branding, and has consulted for Intel, Cisco, Cinematic and Adidas, to name but a few. As a creative artist, Jamie has worked in music, fine art, and documentary film production. His work has screened at the Lincoln Center in New York City, and Kevin Turin of the Los Angeles Times called the film he produced, Showbiz Is My Life, Bugulig. So, welcome to the show. How are you, my friend? I'm good. Wow, that's quite the introduction. Well, you can thank yourself for that. That's all you. (laughs) Wow. My life has seemed so uneventful, but when you introduced me like that, I feel like, uh, you know, maybe I've done a couple of things. 
I think you've done much more than that. And I think this is ultimately just the beginning for you. So let me open up by saying this, uh, Jamie. So Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald, it's a show that appeals to not only entrepreneurs and business-minded folk, but it's also one that most resonates also with those immersed in the world of personal growth and personal development. So when guests and I, when we talk about blocks specifically, it means something vastly different to us than perhaps what it might mean to you in regards to blocks. So when we talk about Andy Warhol, we talk about Mona Lisa, we talk about the VW bug, when we talk about Vincent van Gogh and the sunflowers, the Rubik's Cube, Golden Arches, list goes on. What does that mean to you if you can break it down for us in regards to uh, blocks? Well, a block, basically, you know, I think it's been a question for a long time for all of us um, as to why we notice one thing in the world and ignore another. That question becomes much, much more um, uh, desired to be answered, or it, there's a necessity to answer that question. Um, at, at the, the necessity to answer that question is at a fever pitch because of the world we now live in, which is a world overloaded uh, with a glut of digital messaging and uh, digital marketing, and to the point where we, we're all competing for um, less and less attention because we're competing for attention with people that are constantly being bombarded. When uh, the co-founder of uh, Fast Company um, reviewed my book, uh, Bill Taylor, he said that scarcity of attention is the defining business challenge of our time. I think he was very uh, salient for him to say that, and I think you could also say that scarcity of attention is the defining social challenge of our time. So a block is basically a very large, overly large, simple thing from medium to medium, whether it's music, whether it's a resume, whether it's an email to someone you want to pay attention to you or get buy-in from, whether um, it's a painting, architectural, visual design, this kind of these primal laws of blocks work the same way from medium to medium, and they're what causes us to stop for a second and lock on to something based on uh, primal instincts. And then when you understand how to use them in repetition, um, you can cause that thing to become iconic in someone's mind in a matter of three minutes rather than three, 30, or 300 years by luck, hope, or chance. You can make something iconic in someone's mind at will, mm -hmm. understanding these simple primal laws of, uh, of blocks. And in a world um, and you know the social aspect. Uh, the social aspects of that are very, very important because um, when we can't get attention for the things that matter to us in the world, there's uh, devastating uh, psychological consequences to that, which we can get into. So, even though my book is a professional uh, manifesto, it's also a um, a, a work of a, a deep work of aggressive social change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope that oh. answered my question. So, but the but ultimately to just put a put a spin on to put a an exclamation point on it, a block is an icon waiting to happen. Once something you you find you I teach you how to kind of boil something down to this monolithic road sign that people will lock onto and pay attention to. I show you the repetition technique, and then once it is taken in the mind, it is no longer a block. It is an icon. It is an icon. It's an icon to that person, that group of people. You're trying to commute. Uh, you're trying to communicate to. So, a block is basically um, the anatomy of what makes something icon an iconic. It's it's an icon waiting to happen. Beautiful, brilliant. Okay, so like you, 
and everybody else that we're talking about within the collective as it, as it references and cites back to your book. I too notice patterns and in my research of you, I've come to know that the letter B specifically seems to be a themed pattern in your life. Do you know what I might be referencing when I say that? I have no idea what you're referencing when you say that, but you do notice patterns and uh, you've been, you've been uh, messaging me with interesting patterns and ideas and things that I haven't seen before. So no, I'm mystified. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we all we already covered one of them, which is blocks, right? Mm-hmm. It's starting with B. Also, spelling B and B plus average. Hmm. Okay. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say B plus average? I do know what I know what you're referencing with all three of those things. Yes. Okay. So let's for the list, the benefit and the purpose of the listening audience, so that they can understand context to all of this. Uh, but I did notice the patterns of letter B being a primary theme in your life. So let's start with spelling B. Let's talk about, uh, you know, second grade uh, at Lockwood Elementary School in East Hollywood in Miss Ferris's class. Let's talk about that. God, you're you're hitting me with a you're 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 bringing your guns a blazing here. Um, That's me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, it's interesting because this is not a story that I've I've told too much or even that I think about too much. I mean, I'm thinking about it more with the launch of the book. And in a strange way, you know, in my 40s with the launch of this book, I, it almost feels like it's the start. This book coming, finally coming out to the world almost feels like the start of my life in certain ways. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was a kid that grew up in severe poverty um, in and around down, near downtown Los Angeles, which is, uh, you know, at the time was drought-stricken and um, just a concrete jungle. I grew up mostly in Mexican and Armenian neighborhoods. And so I felt very kind of invisible as a child. I was, I was not, my parents by all uh, virtually abandoned me. So I saw my mother occasionally. I didn't know my father. Um, and I grew up from the time I was born until I was about seven in and out of institutional environments. Um, so, you know, I had all, I had an array of medical problems due to my neglect. Mm -hmm. Um, I needed glasses. We didn't know that. Um, I didn't have any support at home from, you know, the slightest things. I mean, I don't want to, you know, bum everybody out, but no, this is, you know, but I mean, I, you know, from like, okay. So, I mean, I, you know, the basic things that one would think of, you know, you're, you know, uh, having a person, any person to go to, if you're having a problem as a child, uh, brushing your teeth. Um, basic hygiene, all the basic things that we learned from our parents were not things that I was able to learn at a young age. So I was a fairly introverted kid uh, living in the, the, a hyperbaric chamber of my own mind. Of course, I didn't realize that then, but I definitely knew something was desperately wrong mm-hmm. and that I was in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I was in, I, for one brief period, for maybe a year, maybe it was six months, I did end up in a school um, in a mostly Hispanic neighborhood uh, in the in east part of Hollywood in Los Angeles, California, kind of heading towards downtown called Lockwood Elementary School. And I, you know, kind of had a reputation for being the, the you know, most neglected, dumbest kid in the class, probably. And um, I, because I was so introverted and I had no, I didn't know that I couldn't see, I sat at the back of the class 
And that just compounded the fact that I thought I was, you know, stupid or dumb or whatever. And uh, at one point during this time, you know, it was really interesting. I had a thing for words. I, I had no, I didn't go to school, so I didn't know how to write. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know ba- even the most basic math, but I could read at a high level when I was young. So I had this kind of weird ability of I had no skills to express literacy, but I did have a reading literacy, even mm-hmm. if I didn't understand basic grammar, which I didn't. Um, I didn't understand basic grammar um, at 19 years old. But uh, so to, to cut to your story of this pattern that I've never seen with the bees, okay, uh, <laughs> or that I never connected, I never connected, I'm getting a kick out of it actually. <laughs> Um, at one point, they decided to do a, uh, uh, a semester or a year-long spelling bee, 100 words. In, the se- in second grade, 100 words could be like 1,000 words. Mm-hmm. And it was this big thing that the teacher made a big deal about for a long, long time. And I was terrified because I, didn't, I thought I was dumb and you know, I didn't, I didn't uh, think I knew anything. And I, I, it was just a very horrifying experience. So we do these tests. And then the next day, the teacher is going to alphabetically go through all the names and announce how everyone did. She started going down the list. Alvarez, 54 wrong, right? Uh-huh. Alva, you know, 38 wrong. Johnson, you know, down the list. Um, um, 17 wrong, you know, gets the smartest girl in the class and um, says uh, uh, Miller or um, Vasquez, uh, seven wrong. Um, so, uh, she goes down to the M's and I'm waiting for my name for, I'm waiting for 99 wrong or 120 wrong because mm-hmm. of how introverted and, um, just alone I was kind of floating mm-hmm. in the world. You know, I, mm-hmm. I would go in a van every day to school and then go back to dorms. Okay. Mm-hmm. During that period. And, um, uh, she skipped over my name. And so I was just horrified. Mm-hmm. And then I just thought maybe I did so poorly that she didn't want to embarrass me in front of everyone. And that's what I figured Mrs. Ferris was, was doing. And, um, you know, uh, she gets to the end and I think it's over and I thought I dodged a bullet and I thought, okay, you know, I did horribly, but she didn't, she decided not to humiliate me. And I was very grateful. And then she started to talk and she said, you know, there's a special grade that I saved for the end. God, it makes me choked up just talking about it. I just mm. you're get, um, but, uh, and she said, you know, uh, Jamie, uh, mustard. I wanted to save his grade for the last because it's a very special grade. As she's doing this, I'm filled with terror, you know, like mm-hmm. my endocrine, my, my nervous system is raging. Like what is about to happen? What is she going to do to me here? Right. Mm-hmm. And then she said, uh, James, yeah, James, I went by then. So James M, too wrong. Wow. And it was probably the only moment in the languid existence of my early childhood, you know, where there was any evidence that I had any potential for anything <laughs> to myself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was a powerful moment for me to the degree that, like, that, you know, I, may, I probably can't remember a lot of faces from that time in my life, but Mrs. Ferris's face and her kind of um, bob haircut and bangs and dark hair and, you know, loud flowered shirts are kind of, is kind of, her visage is ingrained in my head because it was such a powerful, shocking moment, you know, and yes, then so. it would probably be another 10 to 15 years before there would be, 
you know, any other indication that maybe I had some potential beyond what my circumstances were. Wow. Okay, so that's spelling B. Let's talk about the B plus average and how that was uh, accomplished at the London School of Economics. And if you want to share some of the the timeline so people can make sense of how you've gone from abject poverty to getting into London School of Economics and the person who was so kind in which to sponsor you because they saw something in you. Well, you know, my poverty was not necessarily created by generational poverty. My poverty was created by, you know, choices that um, my parents I get it. made as hippies, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a grandmother that had some means, and that was a very strange thing growing up having that because every summer or two I would go and stay there for a summer or I'd go and stay there for a few weeks. And it seemed like every time that would happen, there would be a shocking medical problem. Mm-hmm. You know, at one point I, I said I couldn't hear. My mother said I was faking. You know, that my grandmother said, well, let's just go to our doctor friend down the street, you know, that we've that's been in our family for all these years. And then, you know, I'd get checked out. I'd be, you know, seven. And the doctor said, uh, you got to drive him to the city immediately. He has to have surgery by tomorrow. He, we don't, I don't even know if we can save his hearing at this point. And I had my adenoids and my tonsils removed because of neglect. And there, there, that happened a couple of times, if not you know, where there would be, a, I'd go for the summer, and then my grandmother would actually look at me like a person, and then there would be some shocking medical thing that needed to be taken care of. But it happened more than once. And I literally got in the car, drove to the city, went into surgery, stayed in the hospital overnight, and that happened, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, so um, I had this grandmother that, you know, I didn't really know that she was always kind of communicating to me that she was a resource. And, you know, when I was 16, she urged me to come stay with her and try to handle my education because I was semi-literate till I was 19. Mm-hmm. And I tried once to go stay with her for a few weeks when I was 16, but I was so illiterate. The thought of trying to study and overcoming it mm-hmm. just overwhelmed me. I couldn't do it. Like, I just felt fear and terror and defeat, and I didn't know where to start. And so I left and went back to Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, she would check in with me, and mm-hmm. she would say things like, you know, you're always welcome here. You can come here. You can live here rent-free. All your necessities will be taken care of. Rent is one thing. You have to be in school. And then you have nothing else to worry about. So when I was 19, you know, facing a life of what I thought might be manual labor or something, something else I didn't want to do, mm-hmm. I got to the point of absolute desperation where I was willing to um, uh you know, call her and say, can I come? And Mm -hmm. she said, yeah, as long as you're in school. So I went there and I signed up for community college, mostly with remedial classes, getting tutoring, basic English, remedial tutoring, remedial tutoring in math. And that's where I discovered economics was at a community college outside of New York City, Westchester Community College. And um, uh, yeah, and somehow within five years, um, I went from, you know, what, you know, five and a half years, Westchester Community College to graduating from the London School of Economics. Um, and so I, uh, there, there were some things that happened in there. I, I, I kind of 
did really uh, economics kind of jumped off the page at me. It was the only thing that ever jumped off the page of me in my whole life when I took economics 101 at that school. I eventually traveled. I, I transferred to a small private college that my grandmother said they're looking for you know, minorities, I'm mixed race. So they're looking for minorities that come from poverty and they're giving them a chance. And I think, she said, I think you apply there even with all your broken transcripts and your lack of SAT scores and all those things. The school is looking for kids like you and I think you could get into a normal college. So we applied and it worked because, you know, and uh, I got into this small private school outside New York City. While I was there, uh, the chairman of the economics department came to me and he said, you know, James, you know, you're getting uh, 80s on your test. And I said, well, that's not bad, professor. And he said, well, I've noticed that you have a literacy problem. You have a hard time writing your tests. And I said, that's true. And he said, this is Professor James Bryan from Manhattanville College. And he said, well, why don't you come to my office and do your tests verbally? And I'll give you the exam. I'll give you it based on what you know, not based on what you can write. Mm, lovely. And and I, even that made me nervous. I mean, I thought, is this guy hitting on me? <laughs> you know, I was so, I had I had such a low self-image, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but I, I went and uh, it turned out he had a wife and kids. <laughs> so I thought I was safe. And he had been great. He had graduated the provost of the school and this school had a castle as its administration building. So I went to this castle, sat in this big wooden office, and all of a sudden I started getting 90s on the exams. And I had a, uh, a girlfriend there that was very sympathetic to my circumstances, and she would work. I did do 10 times the work. She would help me rewrite my papers, literally. I would write them in my illiterate form, and then she would help me redo them with grammar. And every time we would do that, and we did it dozens and dozens of times, my grammar would get a little bit better. You know, mm-hmm. I would start to figure it out, start to figure it out. So I was at a point of just kind of starting to understand basic grammar when I found out you could do a year abroad at London School of Economics. And I mentioned that as kind of just a, an aside to the professor who had been dealing with my literacy. And he said, James, if you would be willing to apply there, I'll get every dean in the school to write a letter for you, okay, including the president of the school. And I'll, and I'll transfer your financial aid package, and I'll make sure that you can do it if we can get you in there. But I think that you have something and that you should try. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tried it. It was one of the most terrifying things I ever did because I was also applying for a program at Georgetown University um, at the same time, uh, uh, a one semester program. And I had to get the applications in at the same time. And I almost had a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. A, because I didn't sleep the 48 hours before trying to get them all in and done. It took them months to do the applications. And B, because I was pushing up against what I didn't think was possible for me. And that was just, it wore me out and brutalized me internally. Why am I trying to do these things that are not going to work out? Why am I trying to do these things that are going to have me just be summarily rejected? Mm -hmm. It was just, you know, I just couldn't understand why I was putting myself through it. And uh, so I, I went and uh, got the applications in and then slept for two days straight at my grandmother's house. And shockingly, uh, I got accepted for one year at the London School of Economics, and I got accepted into this special economic institute at Georgetown University. Um, so I was just reeling. I, I just didn't even, I mean, I didn't even know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I had, I just thought people were feeling sorry for me. 
I did realize when I was probably about 15 or 16 that my biggest challenge in life was going to be overcoming uh, the feeling of not being valuable. That that I somehow I knew that somehow I don't even know how I knew that I somehow knew that poverty made you feel a certain way, mm-hmm. and that I knew that that was a problem. So I did set out. I thought about that problem a lot. How do I not have poverty on my skin for the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. Because I could smell it on the other people in my neighborhood and the other people I grew up with. And that was something definitely that I'd set out to deal with as a challenge. So I was always aware I have to find a way to to make myself feel worthy of everything, of the universe. But not in any sort of woo or kind of self-improvement way, in 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 a kind of just... Um, move forward, anything to create distance between where I started way. So I get to the London School of Economics. I go, I go to Georgetown for this thing. Um, I, uh, uh, I get to the London School of Economics. I'm very grateful that the school has more countries there represented than the United Nations because I was starting to get a handle on my grammar. Mm-hmm. And because there were so many foreign students there, my bad handwriting didn't really jump out. Right. It was just like, mm-hmm. okay, the grammar's there. Okay, can't write. Well, there's all these other kids writing from from different languages into English. So I kind of was able to kind of like, it didn't look weird mm-hmm. on the test. So I was just getting to the point where I was barely getting it. And I was probably there six weeks and I was in an economic history class. And, the, and I always sat at the front of all my classes to take all the co- comprehensive notes because I knew that I would need every edge I could to pass the exams at the end of the year, which were your grade. Whether you showed up in class, didn't show up in class, did all the papers, no matter what your grade was in the class, your grade, your, your grade for the year was whatever you got on this anonymous exam, which was a number where the teacher, the two teachers that graded it didn't know you. They didn't know, they didn't, they weren't related to you in any way and they only knew you as a number. Mm-hmm. So that, that was your grade in the class. So anyway, this professor, he sees me at the front of the class all the time, which is just me trying to, like, not fail. And he says, hey, James, you know, why don't you stay back? And he said, you seem like you really like it here. And I said, well, you know, of course, I'm in London. I'm living here. I'm in the dorm. I, I like it. Well, you know, you just seem like you belong here. And I said, oh, that's very kind. And I think he thought that I was staying in the front row every day and, like, looking at him intently and writing copiously because I was really, really interested. But, no, I was really, really desperate. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he said, you know, he said, you know, James, if you were to, if you were to get a sponsor and you could get a B plus average, B plus average, Lisa, <laughs> BBB, yes. Yes. Um, you could stay on and finish your degree here at the London School of Economics. And I was, it was so incredible to me that he said that to me because I had nobody to sponsor me. And, and I thought, what a cruel thing to say. <laughs> and I said to him, you know, Professor, I, that's a great idea. I just don't have anyone to sponsor you, to sponsor me. But that, thank you for saying that. And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, James, I'm offering to sponsor you. Mm. So I can, I can get you on this sponsorship program. And if you get a B-plus average, you will be um, accepted to finish your degree here at the London School of Economics. Well, so that was the, yeah. Yes, and that, so that, that's the story. Well, and the follow-up B to that is beautiful. Beautiful, brilliant. I mean, you know, yeah, I saw the pattern in that, and I appreciate you sharing for the purpose, again, of the listening audience and eventually the podcast subscribers, uh, the backstory on that. Um, 
I hope I didn't go on and on, Lisa, like I make no, it too long of a story. No, okay. no, no, no. And I want this, I want this, I went into this interview with you, James, because I want this to be different, unlike all the other interviews uh, that you have had to date as it pertains to your book. Uh, okay. You know, yes. So when I, I texted you before we went live here and, yeah. um, and I shared something with you and I'm going to share it here with the listeners because, you know, I, I go deeper than just what someone's brand is, what their book is, what, you know, you're here clearly because you have succeeded on a lot of different levels and success is a very, uh, individualized definition, but what makes you successful in my eyes, because I truly believe I, I do see your heart. I believe I do see your soul. Um, and I don't think that there's any coincidence. One, I, I don't believe in coincidences to begin with. But in your particular case of what I mean by that is there's no coincidence between what this book is about in terms of how it pertains to blocks specifically. You know, you having come from the background that you've just so graciously and vulnerably uh, shared with us uh, and talking about desperation and talking about deep neglect, um, you know, things that other people hopefully don't have to understand or experience on the level in which you have. And here you are, you know, fast forward to current times or when you first started to conceptualize this and it took the life of, of and format of writing a book. Um, you know, and you're talking about blocks and you're talking about how to get things embedded into the mind to the point where it's not even a nanosecond anymore with the message instantaneously penetrating. We understand things automatically, call it a stop sign, call it art, call it music, call it whatever. Um, and I've codified that pattern with a lot of academic research and yes. pop culture stories and historical examples that back it up. I think anyone, so that I think anyone would have a hard time arguing with any point that I make in that book. I agree with you. I yeah. agree with you. Um, and so when I look at, you know, invisible and what that translates to in terms of visibility as it relates specifically to blocks, where everybody is getting you on their show, where everybody is getting you in every possible format, call it a magazine article, doing a write-up on you, you know, it's different for me. It, it, it's, much, it's a different thing because, as I said to you in my text, the more research I began doing on you, um, the more it actually became very painful for me because, and I'm going to try not to get too emotional here, because for what you endured... And that's part of what we opened up with in terms of the bio, too. You know, like it, it's it's really about uh, endurance and having lasting legacy and having, you know, getting that embedded into the mind. Um, so here you are, you're this invisible kid and your success has really come across very brilliantly. So what it is for things to stand out, for things to have teeth, for things to have legs, for things to instantly penetrate. And what that does in terms of conversion from a monetization or a branding or a technological perspective, it's absolutely Or a, pers a personal basis. I'd like to, I hope we yes. get to talk a little bit about what it means for the individual absolutely. To, to be drowned out by all this white noise and the psychological effects of it. My, I'm really, I have a courageous publisher in Bimbella Books. You know, they allowed me to make a, a business book that is a, bo a book of social change with massive crossover, and and I really it has a, it can it, it can help anyone Absolutely. get the attention that they deserve. 
Absolutely. So very clearly, succinctly, what my point is, is that, you know, you are very successful. People see the brilliance of your messaging. People see how succinct you are in your messaging. And the fact is, it's true. Like, it's true. You can't argue the kind of society we are, the culture and how we uh, become consumers and what our attention does, in fact, gravitate to and what what impressions historically still resonate with us or in terms of melody within music, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, So I I also think from the humanistic standpoint, though, you know, you wanted to be seen, you wanted to be heard. And, and, And for all the neglect that you endured and you had faced, it took coming upon something that could become commonplace or a universal sign or symbol for everybody's comprehension level to be able to grasp it for you to finally be seen. And so where everybody's, you know, everybody's celebrating your notoriety, your success, your, your genius, I see it as a derivative of your pain. So the greater your success, it, it, it more so magnifies the degree and the depth of the pain in which you endured. And so it's been very, it was bittersweet. Uh, you know, it's an honor and it's a privilege to have you here. Don't get me wrong, but it's bittersweet because I extrapolated all of what you've done, all of what you've accomplished, and I took it back to that boy. I took it back to that little boy who was dismissed, who was neglected, who was not seen, who was not visible, um, and and for that reason, you then became questioning your own self-worth. And, um, you know, so that does leave deep, penetrating scars. And so I applaud you on your success. I appreciate you as a human being. I understand what this is doing to the level of consciousness and elevating it for everybody and really putting the the face to it uh, and the explanation and the, the methodology behind it. Um, but I want to applaud you, the human being, for your indomitable spirit, uh, for prevailing uh, and for showing up. Thank you. I mean, I, I you know, I don't think uh, it's... It, that's you know people will ask me about my story and if people ask me a direct question I have a really ta- hard time not giving them a direct answer even if I don't I'm not comfortable with the answer I try to give people an accurate just you know depiction of what I went through I don't you know because of my current life um, you know I don't I don't think people see that mo- very often I think they really just see me as this really strong pers- brain mm-hmm. right and they kind of see me as this like uh, artistic uh, brainiac and they don't smell the poverty on me. So I don't think people can really understand the level of depravity. I mean, I mean, one year I, I remember sleeping maybe on the floor maybe for two years when I was nine and I would sleep with a shirt, t-shirt pulled over my head so roaches didn't crawl in my mouth. I mean, that was the level. I didn't have the normal things that kids grow up with. Like, you know, I'd teach myself how to ride a bike in the halls of a slum by pushing myself back and forth between the walls because I didn't have anybody to teach me these things. But I'm not trying to say that because I'm looking for pity. I don't really often talk about this stuff. But um, I, I think what's so, ironic, what's so fascinating about it is I, don't ever, I never saw the connection between being invisible and then coming across these and codifying this pattern and these primal rules, primal laws, as to why we stop and pay attention to things no matter the medium. I, until the book was done, I mm-hmm. never saw the connection. And the book's only been done, you know, I probably turned in the, the, the first draft of the manuscript. I mean, I mean, the book was only done, you know, six months ago, and it only came out two weeks ago. Okay. So it's, it's interesting that I never saw the connection between, 
my youth and that I wrote a book on this till I'd actually done it, you know, 30 years later or whatever it was, you know. So there's that. And, but, and also, you know, you had, you, you had said to me in a message, it, you know, I've never had anyone in my, in my life, not an interviewer, no one, say what you just said to me. And it's really hard. It, it brings up a lot of emotion, uh, I've ne- you know, because I'm kind of like an intellectual pop culture you know, star boy, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily somebody that somebody looks at as like a personal growth expert. You know, people more look at me as like a pragmatic uh, person you can learn from to, you know, have the, you know, draw to magnetize attention and get buy-in and get demand from people. That's what I teach in my book. So no one in, in my, I don't know that anywhere in an interview or also any time previously in my entire existence has someone recognized that concept of pain or even said, hey, I know that you've gone through a crazy fucking amount of pain. And I've, yes. and, you know, so all I would say about that is like, um, it should have extinguished me based on the medical scares and, and other such dangerous situations that you, you know, grow up, you know, you experience growing up in bad neighborhoods or poor neighborhoods. It should have extinguished me time and time and time again. And, you know, when you said that, um, I thought of the sentiment of, of something. I a young uh, Jewish writer who was I was mentoring, and I told him, really talented guy, you know, you need to add more meaning to your work, not just have it be funny. And he did a zine on the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And he expressed to me what I expressed to you in a message back to you when you were talking about the pain, because no one's ever asked me about that. No one's even mentioned it. And I'll even say this, as a interviewer or even as someone I've known, no one's even ever in my life until this interview said it out loud to me, let alone recognized it. I felt that I've had other people that have come from backgrounds like that, that when we're all kind of you know, in a different place now, and we kind of give each other a nod, no one's ever said it out loud to me. But um, in this scene that this young uh, Jewish kid did about the Holocaust, that he was contemplating, you know, why would God put us through that? And then the answer he gives at the end of the zine is to deepen our empathy mm-hmm. for others. Why else would we suffer? Mm-hmm. So I do feel that um, I have, that going through that has ground me into a laser focus of purpose because on the surface, my work is not necessarily always about helping others. It's about giving people a tool that can illuminate them. And that's mm-hmm. not all, you know, um, and so, but why I think I've been able to endure and be successful and get a publishing deal and get all these accolades is because I never was going for the publishing deal to get a publishing deal. I never do a PR campaign or an interview to do an, to, 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 to just to sell books. I mean, I want to sell books because I want, I know my book, if someone reads my book, it's going to alter the course of the way they see the world and how to get attention in a world where they're being diluted by mass messaging overload. So that's very important to me. But ultimately, I'm able to, I'm able to communicate that message because of my purpose, which is to, to get people seen. And um, that comes from the empathy created by all that pain that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I hate to admit it. I hate to admit it because it's, it's embarrassing to think about what happened to that kid. I dedicated my book to that kid, 
to the, mm-hmm. to my nine-year-old self and the angels that helped him along his way is the dedication of the book. But I got to tell you, it's humiliating for me to talk about because when I think about that kid and the humiliation that he endured, um, it's hard for me to admit to you that uh, the the extent of the pain has rever- reversed itself into the extent of a kind of deep empathy that I think is the thing that has caused my work to be exponentially shareable and and good and better because I push myself and I push mm-hmm. myself because I want to reach people. Well, why do I want to, you know, so you called me on that and, you know, I don't really know what to do with myself. I'm going to probably have to get off the phone when we're done and get in the shower and, you know, mm-hmm. sit there in the cold shower in the fetal position. <laughs> <laughs> Or we can decompress together because, you know, I, I feel the emotion of this and, uh, you know, I, I feel the essence and the soul of you. And I think it's just, I think what speaks very loudly to me, what stands out for me is that it took this book, it took this book for you to be visible. That pisses me off. Um, so when we talk about the correlation between the personal relationship between the invisible Jamie as a child with the now visible iconist Jamie as an adult, it really bothers me that it took this book for people to see you. And that's not to, that's not to dismiss the people like the teacher, uh, like the guy at the college, the professor, your, your grandmother, you know, you had those people, which I'm very grateful. And the girlfriend, I, you know, for those people who saw something in you and saw the worthiness in you and saw the deservability and they wanted to be part of the solution and they wanted to facilitate and help navigate you get to a point where you could get out from underneath that rock in some way, in some capacity, uh, even if you couldn't escape at all at that particular point in time. Um, but, you know, but fundamentally speaking for where you sit now on the global stage, it pisses me off that it took this book for you to be seen. Well, I mean, I think that you said it right there. I mean, I think I've been seen. I've got a, quite a network of incredible people. I've of been seen on do. a lot of levels. But as far as an international platform, it took this book to give me an international platform. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a strange thing. You know, I like to, I often say to people that I feel like I'm a, I've spent my life as a, an escape artist, houdining myself out of every, every difficult situation that I, I've been in. But, you know, ultimately, um, when I came up with the idea for this book, it was before the social media wave. I mean, I, I first had an idea for this in 2007. Mm-hmm. So it was before Twitter hit hard, Facebook hit hard, Pinterest, you know, Pinterest, Instagram, it was before all these things. I saw this deluge occurring. And it, what ends up happening is if you were a, you know, a, a, a baker or a, uh, a writer, if you say you were a writer or an artist, you know, 50 years ago, you were only competing with other artists and other writers. But now mm-hmm. because of mass messaging overload um, and mass choice overload, people are constantly distracted. There's been lots of people that have written about that. Mm-hmm. What makes my book different is I was less concerned with what it meant to be distracted and more concerned with what, it, what does it mean and what does it do to a person 
who's trying to communicate in a world where everyone is distracted and won't take the time to stop and look at what they have to offer. And what are the psychological effects of that? I was more concerned is what are the effects of everyone else being so distracted that it's harder to get more, it's harder to get traction and get seen for anything you're wanting to do, whether it's buying from your boss, a grant proposal, a resume, your um, um, music, uh, architecture, your science, or your engineering, whatever your solution is. Um, block, the primal laws of blocks work from medium to medium. And I, you know, there's crazy statistics out there. We only spend one third of our lives working, but 87% of Americans are not happy with their jobs. Mm-hmm. And um, I believe that this digital overload and feeling invisible because we're competing with all of this content. Like if you were to go into a grocery store 50 years ago, there were eight or 9,000 items. Uh, now if you go into a grocery store, there's 50,000 items. So that's all more distraction for the person to have less attention for you. Ad, if you walk through the streets of America 50 years ago, you'd be exposed to 250 ads a day. In the mm-hmm. late 90s, someone checked that uh, before social media, and that was up to five to 7,000 ads a day. Today with social media, it's probably 10 to 15,000 ads a day. You couldn't process 1,000. And there's psychological effects of that. The psychological effects of that are paralysis. If we don't feel like we're going to be seen, we won't even try. Anxiety. Will anybody see me? Anxiety about being seen. Dissatisfaction. I'm not seen, so I'm dissatisfied with my life because no one's really seeing uh, me for what I want them to see. And, and ultimately, it can lead to depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all this technology isolates us. And I really do have, like, my book is technically a business book. And, and props to Bimbella Books for me, for letting me work social change into this very pragmatic professional handbook. Because I think some pe- it's interesting. Some people read it. CEOs call me, and it's a CEO guide. And then other people call me, and all they read in it is the social change aspect. So the, the, the geniuses, uh, the br- brilliant publisher, Glenn Yefeth, who I think is the best in the business, um, the publisher of Bambella Books, I mean, he went on a journey with me, and he allowed me to make the book that I wanted to make. But, uh, you know, the, but, ultimately, but my goal is that you read my book, if you're an artist, if you're um, a musician, if you're a professional, you will be, you can read it. It's a very easy read. I worked very hard to make it simple, short chapters that you can blaze through. Uh, you will walk away with simple tools that will make people pay attention to you no matter what you do. It's almost a, like an ability to magnetize others with simple just pragmatic techniques that anyone, that a child could use. That's how okay. easy it is to apply mm-hmm. based on our primal instincts of what, why we pay attention to one thing and ignore another. And uh, yeah, so, um, but my, ultimately I want to remove that, those feelings of pain and isolation created by technology. We spend less time hanging out with people. So, cause we're on technology all the time and we're isolated. And if you put, if you go to a supermax prison and you see someone in isolation, there's all sorts of bizarre behaviors of paranoia and aggression. And I'm not saying that technology makes it like a supermax prison, mm-hmm. but I think that there's a lesser version of that. I think what I experienced as a kid, and I can only say this because I only put it together after the book came out. I would have never said I was written and saw any connection between my invisibility as a child and, and uh, while I was writing the book and what, what is coming up for me now. But I can... I can only say that the invisibility, and I can only say this now post-book, because I only put this together recently, mm-hmm. the invisibility that I experienced as a child 
is something that all of us are experiencing now because of mass messaging overload is so overwhelming that no one has three minutes to stop and look at our offering, and we can feel it. It's like a bass note, and mm -hmm. it reverberates through all of us. So it is a very interesting thing here that you've touched on, Lisa, because um, if I had not experienced that pain, which I wouldn't wish on my worst, worst enemy, Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I've ne ever met, and I've met through other human beings that have gone through trauma, maybe trauma that was even worse than mine, or definitely worse than mine. The length of that trauma, the length of that pain, the length of that neglect, I could give anybody a run for their money. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, I, you know, I shouldn't have survived it. So I do think... <clears throat> um, that I have a, un I'm uniquely poised to understand to have a receptor of what feeling invisible does to people. And I believe that uh, mass messaging overload, digital overload, I have crazy statistics in my book that will uh, terrify ama and amaze you, um, I think is making all of us to some degree fee to feel how I felt as a child. And I think I, the, only, the only solace that I can possibly obtain. I mean, you have me thinking about something that I don't like thinking about and I don't want to be thinking about, but the only, the only upside, the only reasoning I can make of it is I went through that so that I could be uniquely in this position to solve this for lots of good people. Um, yes. so that, uh, you know, you know, I, I, maybe there's a better way you could encapsulate what I'm saying, but I'm, I'm, I, I hate to, I hate to believe, and I, that's maybe a question I have for you. I mean, I just hate to believe that I had to go through that so that I could be in a position to see a pattern, a social Gladwellian pattern that nobody else would see. But you know, you're making me see maybe that that's true, and that, and you know, I'm it horrifies me. Well, I can I can I can relate to that wholeheartedly, and I can attest to that because you know, for what I've gone through, and I'm not going to, you know, everybody who knows me knows the backstory. So, you know, when people say, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, I can say sincerely and wholeheartedly, would I wish that upon anyone else? Absolutely not. Would I uh, elect to want to go through that again voluntarily? Absolutely not. However, would I change what happened to me? Would If I had that magic wand where I could uh, eradicate change the the course of my history I would elect not to I say that because if all of that disappeared I can't say for sure that I would be the empath that I am today or the nurturer or the beacon of light or the person who champions other people or the person who uplifts people to fear less and to live more I wouldn't know you quite likely we would not be on this call so you know for what that does in terms of my and yours and everybody else who has their own story and how they've pushed past the desperation, they've pushed past the pain to make something more meaningful out of their life because by propping themselves up and empowering themselves, they've now given voice to other people to empower other people to empower themselves. And that's the gift that keeps on giving. Truly it is. Yeah, I mean, it's, in, it's really incredible to think about. I mean, you know, the the um the book that i the the book the the book that i wrote um you know i've sat and again i i've sat across from a ceo that was miserable because they didn't like uh they didn't have meaning 
they were maybe the CEO and maybe they were, I mean, and again, everybody's struggle is everybody's struggle. I look at like a white male CEO or woman that comes to me that's a CEO and her or him not feeling like they're getting the buy-in in life for what they want to be getting the buy-in for mm-hmm. and the pain that that causes that person. I look at that with the same veracity that I, li- that I would look at a poor kid from uh, the uh, ghetto that would come up to me and say, hey, in relative terms, Jamie, you made it. You know, mm-hmm. um, how can you help me? Mm-hmm. Like everyone, everyone is valid. And yes. everyone's struggle is valid. And I think that one thing that I learned in my struggle is that I, I don't want to just help, you know, ki- you know, poor kids or minorities or, or women or men. Or I want to help everybody. And mm-hmm. I want to acknowledge every human being's struggle at every level of the game. If we don't judge each other, everyone's got their, their thing. And everyone wants to be seen for what they are. 87% of Americans don't like their jobs. What I think that's about, and I address this very aggressively towards the end of my book, is what I call transparency. Mm-hmm. The only way we can, um, and I teach you how to be, tra- I, tell, I tell you the anatomy of transparency. If you, in, um, the only way we can truly be fulfilled, like you know, Maslow's concept of fulfillment, right? We get above basic survival needs of food and shelter, and then it's self-actualization, you know, fulfilling, yeah. becoming what we feel on the inside, on the outside, mm-hmm. is the only thing that satisfies us as human beings. And that's true whether we're a poor black kid in Soweto or if we're a white male living in Beverly Hills. We want to be seen for what we are. Mm-hmm. And um, I've had you know, rich white kids come up to me when I was at the London School of Economics. I had a rich white kid who was miserable telling me, American kid, that he was miserable because everybody saw him as a rich white male. And he was so much more than that. Mm-hmm. And so I want people to be seen for what they feel on the inside. And I explain how to do that in my book as a professional, but also as a human being. And, you know, it's so strange that like 87% of Americans don't like their jobs. We, one third of our work, one third of our waking, or of our hour, of our waking hours are spent, or one third of our lives are spent working. But shockingly, um, Lisa, it's how we define ourselves. We mm-hmm. work one-third of the time, but we define ourselves 90% about what, what, what we do. When Very we see true. somebody at a cocktail party, we don't say, what's your family like? Tell me about mm-hmm. your wife. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, tell me uh, who you are and what your values are. Mm-hmm. We say, what do you do? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're programmed to believe that our work is how we value ourselves. And so 90% of us value ourselves uh, almost all of us value ourselves by what we do in our work. So it's so important that we feel fulfilled in that because that's how most of us are getting our self-esteem. Absolutely. So what transparency, so what transparency is, is people, you know, what all I've ever tried to do in my life is have the internal drivers that, were, that are within me because people say, oh, you're self-possessed. And what they're really saying, what they're really seeing is that I've, they're seeing a, a connection between my internal drivers and, the, and my exterior life, they match. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, we all have these in, internal impulses and then society douses us with, with what we're supposed to do. Or we're not able to do, have our external life match what we feel on the inside we're worth. And, that's, and so true transparency is when what we feel on the inside is reflected in our outside life. And I explain how this works in the book. And when you have that, the internal drivers, the internal thrusters, the internal purposes, and your external life in terms of your relationships and in terms of your work and your vocation 
um, when those things match, that's when we really truly feel fulfilled as human beings. Bingo. And this is why I didn't want to talk so much about your book, because your book is going to continuously get, you know, nonstop buzz about that. I wanted to to reinforce your point, to reiterate your point and to show that I am aligned with your point uh, that you've cited in your book is I didn't want to just talk about your book. What do you do for a living? Let's talk about the obvious. Let's talk about icons. No, I want to talk about you. So um, you're going to get all the other coverage. And it's not to say, Jamie, that you can't come back here and we can't delve more specifically into the other updates as they as come down the pike. We most certainly can. Um, but I wanted to make this interview about you. I, and I appreciate that because you're having me looking at some things that I probably need to look at that are hard to look at. That being said, if you are out there and you are a professional and you want buy-in from your boss, you want your art to be seen, you want your music to be seen, you want your architecture to be seen, you want your design to be seen in practical terms, and you're feeling drowned out by all the, 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 the swirling digital and mass messaging, messaging overload, if you feel like it's harder and harder to stand out, which it is, statistically, I outline what that means, how that is in my book, um, uh, you can read this book, The Iconist, The Art and Science of Standing Out, and you can use these simple primal laws to magnetize attention. So we talked about the social part, but I want to make sure that people do know that uh, the book is out there um, as, a, as a solution. And, you know, the, what, you know, Dan, Dan Pink, you know, called it a, um, a roadmap for all of us to leave a legacy in our new digital lives, right? So mm -hmm. it does work. And I, you know, I want people to understand, you know, from understand that from my journey for somehow I was able to recognize this pattern and write it down so that you could use it. Um, it's very, very easy to read. I worked, I almost at my own expense, I made it far. I feel like not because I was illiterate as a kid. I wanted um, a lot of times books like this, like Dan Pink books and Malcolm Gladwell books and the company, you know, the incredible company that I, I'm in, uh, mm -hmm. even though those guys are my heroes and I don't really feel like I could ever be in their company. Um, these books are often, you know, I try to make my book, uh, you know, have all the research, but I wanted to make it so accessible. So I wrote it at a, at a level where almost anyone can read it because I yeah. really want knowledge to be available to everyone because it wasn't available to me for so long. And then I went to a brainiac school and I became smart. Uh, but I feel, but I, I want knowledge to be available for as many people as possible. So if you're feeling isolated or like you can't get traction, these primal laws of blocks, they work unchanging from medium to medium and they can help you uh, get the attention that we all deserve as human beings. We're all worthy of no matter what you do. If you're a musician, it'll get people to lock onto your music. If you're an artist, it'll get people to stop and look at your art. It'll help people, it'll get your your boss to look at your email. It'll, it'll make your grant proposal or your resume go to the top of the stack. So I want everyone to uh, feel that they can get uh, that feeling and not feel invisible in practical terms. Because the book is kind of like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about, you know, we can notice all these things in a blink. Well, if we notice all these things in a blink before we even have a chance to think, how would you harness that blink every time? I, tell, I can teach you how to harness, hold a blink, and make something in the, iconic in the minds of others at will and with deliberation in a matter of minutes rather than hope, luck, chance, or years. And I want... and um, 
this invisibility thing, this, this thing I call dilution, which is we're all competing with this incredible amount of content. Uh, so we've become less and our voices have been quieted because people don't, I mean, people don't have the attention to track with us anymore. Um, I do not like, I did not like feeling invisible as a kid and I don't want anyone in their life to feel like they can't get traction or seen for anything that they have a passion for. Mm-hmm. And I promise you, um, if you read this book, you will have a ro- you will have a way to grab the attention and it's simple and it's all out there in the world and it's easily observable. So you kind of read my book and you go, of course, oh my, of course, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's out there in the world and all around you. You'll, you'll never look at the world the same way when you understand the primal laws of blocks and how they very simply turn things into icons. And it's a scary thing. The last thing I'll say, I know we only have a minute left, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, is, you know, there's incredible statistics on like job boards, right? Have you asked people, how many people think they can get a job at a job board? The number is like 29%. They think it's a good place to get a job. The truth is on, a, on a, an inter, a big international job board, for every million applicants, the hiring is less than 1%. <laughs> what does that do to the psychological state of a human being to beat their head against a wall like that? Mm-hmm. I don't want to call them out by name. I don't want people to feel that way. What having a 1% chance, even though you're sending and sending and sending, no matter whether you're a musician or an artist or a professional or a CEO trying to get out, I don't want anyone to feel that way. And because, and so um, I really, really, really hope that people, if you can't afford my book, send me an email on my website, theiconist.org, and I will help you. And, uh, and I'll help you in many cases uh, for free because I have a really, really hard time uh, like uh, turning anyone away. So I, I just want you to know, uh, if you can't afford my book, uh, re- reach out to me on theiconist.org, go to the contact page, do a hyperlink, and it'll go right, right to me. And uh, and I'll and I'll and I'll at least send you the primal laws for where, where your area of concern is. Beautiful. Well, what I'm going to say in closing, Jamie, uh, aside from the fact that I'm very grateful to you for joining myself and the global listeners and the podcast subscribers here today, uh, I just I want to just say in closing, in wrapping up here, you know where you are defined, characterized as an expert, Jamie, on standing out and making something endure. I am an expert, I believe, on seeing the hearts and the souls of people. And your expertise is your, I believe, your area of expertise because you stand out and you will endure. I believe that wholeheartedly. You're already living, breathing that, talking that. That's, that's the existence of what you embody currently uh, and always have to get to this point. What I'll also say in closing to Jamie is that um, where you smell poverty on you. I only smell inner beauty on you. Truly. This has been a beautiful experience, Lisa McDonald, and I'm very, very grateful to you. Well, I'm exceptionally grateful to you, as is the rest of the world. So thank you again. What I will say to uh, the listening audience, I want to thank you very much for taking time out of your own hectic schedules, for joining myself and my fantastic, beautiful guest today, Jamie Mustard. Go check him out. Go reach out. You know, he's got all kinds of things upcoming, and that's going to be an ongoing succession of things, one right after the other. Uh, So if there's an upcoming talk, 
figure out if he's in your neck of the woods. If you can go see him take the stage, where to tune into the YouTube videos. You can Google him. He comes up first and foremost. He's out there. Uh, so I'm very clear on my purpose. My purpose is to uplift you to fear less and to live more. And so until next Friday, I want to say love and gratitude to you all. Wishing you a phenomenal weekend and all my best as well as to you, Jamie. Thank you. And to anyone out there, if you have a question, shoot me a message. Beautiful. Fantastic. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout-out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Helton Honda, Forever, and AHA That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. And until next week, our fearless friends, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio telling you to be your own hero, be your own hero, be your own leader, and be your own best friend. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.